Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with the nice and super healthy Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? Oh, Chris, I'm a little sick. I'm, I'm actually can... getting better, but as you can tell by my voice, I was a little sick this weekend. Flu's going around. My son had it for an entire week. What's what's going on? Let's hear all about your, you know, is, or is it not our business? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's good with the dad jokes, Chris Bougay. <laughs> Honestly, so what's crazy is that this started last week. I got this phantom cough. And I'm like, where's this cough coming from? I wasn't sick. I wasn't congested. I didn't feel bad. I just had this weird cough. And I'm like, this is bizarre. I've never had, I've had a cough, but it's always been in conjunction with a cold. And so I was just like, okay, I guess I just have a cough. I don't really know. I'll hydrate. Maybe I'll have some tea with honey. And slowly but surely, that cough turned into a cold, which mm. was really annoying. Um, but because it was so interesting, I was talking with my mom, who's a nurse, and she's like, make sure it's not coronavirus. Do you have a fever? I mean, everyone's going crazy about this coronavirus, which they should be. It's kind yeah. of scary what's going on um, you know, internationally and also in Los Angeles, which is obviously where I live. But rest assured, everybody, I don't have a fever. It's not coronavirus. I think it's just a cold from all of those beautiful germs that I get every day from all of those kids that I love so much. Um, but yeah, I just had a cough that turned into a little bit of a cold, but I'm feeling better today and um, hoping my voice comes back soon. This past week, I was at a conference, the um, South Carolina Speech and Hearing Association Conference. So Skisha is how they say it. And that was on my mind, like, oh, man, there's so many people here in this, you know, uh, all it takes is one person to be sick. And now, I, you know, it could infect everybody in the room. Everyone could be sick, you know. It's really crazy, actually. So have you ever uh, watched the show Explained on Netflix, Chris? No. It's like a mini docuseries. Um, it's by, is it by Vox? You know, the 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 news publication Vox, uh, Vox by Ezra Klein. Anyway, it's, a, it's, it's done by him. The series is done by him. And it's really cool. It's like 20-minute episodes dedicated to a certain thing. And there's one on pandemics. And I watched it, and I've never been more terrified in my entire life. I actually watched it before coronavirus hit. And now I feel like I, I just know too much. I know too much about how easily these pandemics can spread. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, it's definitely a good show. So what's going on with you, Chris, besides going to conferences, which I feel like, I don't know how you have time in your schedule to go to all the conferences that you go to, uh, but what's, what's new? I was one of the speakers over at Skisha, so that's how I got to go to that one. But what, there, I got a quick story to tell you about that, which is sort of an update in the world of the AAC certification for ASHA. So I know this is a, a hot topic for a lot of people. And the very first session of the day, I actually wasn't presenting. So I got to go to a session. And the session that I chose to go to was by Marie Ireland. If you don't know who Marie Ireland is, she is a, an ASHA representative. Uh, she's the vice president for SLPs or the SLP position, I think is how it's technically worded. Anyway, so she works in that, in that arena and she works at ASHA. Um, and I had actually never met her, um, but uh, I knew we knew of each other. So I wanted to go and introduce myself before her session. So for, for we had a nice like, you know, 10 minute talk before her session started. Um, and I asked her about the certification. It kind of came up because she knew, you know, that this was going to be something that was immediately on the forefront of my mind, but it's so many other speech therapists are thinking and talking about this. So 
I just asked her, I said, you know, so what's, what's up with ASHA? I mean, it's, there's so many people having just come back from ATIA where there's so many people that are thinking it's very controversial. Can ASHA just like pump the brakes? Maybe not, maybe not say let's not do it, but just let's slow down and talk about it and look at different avenues. I know my position, I've, I've said it before on the podcast, has been to look at micro-credentialing as a way of considering, you know, some sort of medium in between. And what it was interesting, she, she thought that was an interesting idea and, and that had been suggested before. But what she was talking about, I'm going to pause us for a second and I'm going to take us over to a different website, okay? So I'm just going to pause that conversation, hold it right there, okay? This is a website we have mentioned before, but I want to bring it up again. It's because I have not talked about it in a long time. It's called yourlogicalfallacyis.com. Yourlogicalfallacyis.com. And what that is, what that it has like all these different um, buttons you can click on. And when you click on the little button, these little icons, it takes you to a logical fallacy, meaning something that is not true, but people use these to logic or argue things all the time. And one kind of classic that is on this website that they talk about is called the slippery slope argument. So what it means is if you were to go click on and look at it, the slippery slope argument says, asserting that if we allow A to happen, then Z will consequently happen too. Therefore, A should not happen. And they actually give an example uh, on the website that says, uh, Colin asserts that if we allow same-sex couples to marry, then the next thing we know will be allowing people to marry their parents, their cars, and even monkeys, right? A, I love how they make it so ridiculous, right? Because right. it really holds water. Marie, bringing it back to a conversation about AAC certification, she never actually referenced this website or this particular argument, the slippery slope argument. But what she was talking about was, well, okay, there's a lot of people that have this fear that if the certification comes about, then what will happen? So A, the certification comes about, then Z will, will happen, meaning it'll be harder for people to get devices. People will get denied devices for clients or for patients or for students because they don't have this certification. And what she said is, there's no evidence of that ever happening. She said she has a certification in early childhood and that has not prevented the world of speech therapists of working in early childhood, you know, um, that, so that there is no evidence to suggest that this slippery slope argument actually holds any water. So, so this really resonated with me because I'm like, yes, right, we should be making decisions based on logic, right? Except, she said, we did have just one case that we are investigating right now of a physical therapist that was denied uh, a wheelchair who did not have a RESNA certification. So RESNA is a, another organization. In fact, you can get an assistive technology certification through RESNA, um, but it's one for physical therapists as well. And this, they had heard this one sort of urban legend that someone mentioned it to ASHA. And so they were investigating the details because that would be the first evidence that because someone did not have a certification, therefore a person or a client did got denied a piece of equipment, in this case, a wheelchair, not an AAC device. It's not a slippery slope argument anymore, right? Because now there is evidence that suggests A does actually cause Z. And so they're investigating it, which was great to hear that ASHA is very um, aware of this controversy and very on top of it and thinking of it in a very logical, non-emotional way, which uh, to me, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, that is really great to hear that they are really thinking about the ramifications um, because I know as clinicians, we're all wondering that, right? Like, what will this look like? And I think we're oftentimes really 
fearful of things when they change, right? I think that's a normal human thing. We like what we know. And when there's something that we don't know what it's going to be like, we immediately like run to the corner and say like, no, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but change is inevitable, obviously. And change oftentimes can be very good. Um, It's not good to stay in the same place, right? We need to be evolving and growing. And um, my hope is that, you know, Asha will continue to get all the feedback that's coming in and uh, make decisions and um, parameters around the certification accordingly. Um, Because I don't inherently think it's, you know, bad to have an AAC specialty certification. It's just um, figuring out what that actually looks like and what that translates to into our practice, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So back to the website just for a second. I think that website is very awesome, Rachel, for making any sort of big decision from a system standpoint. And that's what Asha is sort of charged with here. Uh, But I think it could work for a school district, for a business, for, for anything is like, okay, Uh, the rationale we are using to make the decision we're making, let's just go over to this website and kind of look through, are we making any of these, are we projecting things that, um, that is not logical, you know, are our decisions based on logic? And that's not to say that every decision needs to be based on logic, but uh, from a big system standpoint and thinking about how things work, if you're about to make a decision, think you'd want to at least run it through the paces of here and go, let's just go through each one of these and make sure that we're, that what we're saying holds water with, from a logical standpoint. What do you think about that as a strategy? Yeah, I really love it. First of all, I have to say, while you were talking, I put in the website. So I'm on the website right now. (laughs) And I love it. It's so easy to digest, I feel like. And it's really fun. I think the way that they, like the tone of this website, I think is really entertaining. And um, it doesn't, it's not too high level, right? Because when we're thinking about like, philosophy and all of these crazy things. Sometimes it's so in the clouds that you're like, wait, where are we? What are we talking about? How do I like wrap my brain around this? Um, and so, yeah, I love this. I love this website. I'm really excited to, to keep checking it out after our recording today, because I think it's a really good resource. You know, um, one of the things they, they, they talk about on this website, just mention it briefly, is that this is a lot of politicians might use these sort of arguments to sway you, right? And as we head towards new elections and new, it'd be good from, for whatever camp you're in uh, politically is to run through whatever the candidates are saying, kind of run it through this website, you know, think right. about it from that standpoint. So they're like, okay, is that holding water? Is someone trying to influence me in a certain way? And I think of it that same way from administrators you work with, um, from, from anyone, you know, um, the, these, these, these hold water. I love it. So Rachel, let's talk about Patreon. You guys, we have more Patreon members. I'm going to shout them out for us. Maggie, Aaron, Kristen, Kate, Rianne. Um, thank you guys so much for joining. We're super excited to have you guys. And we're getting there, Chris. We're doing this thing. We are really excited about our Patreon. If you guys haven't joined, go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech to join us. Become a core member for $8 a month. That's $2 an episode. Um, if you love the podcast, you now have a way to support us. And I'm just really excited for when we get to 50, Chris. Because when we get yeah. to 50 members... Tons of great things are going to expand and grow and happen. Yeah. You know what we're going to do? We're going to buy that helicopter we've been talking about. We're going to have the Talking With Tech helicopter. That's what we're going to do with all that Patreon cash, right? Is that, no, Rachel, you're making a face. Like, you know no, we're what? Not, I'm not allowed to buy the helicopter. I think a helicopter could be useful. <laughs> that, that way I can come visit you in Virginia. It feels like a good, a good investment, right? <laughs> yeah. We could do the podcast live every week from face to face, I mean. <laughs> exactly. No, but in all seriousness, this podcast 
needs your support. We have a huge team of people behind us helping us and we want to help support them. We want to continue to do this podcast, which we absolutely love. And um, we know you guys love this podcast because you tell us all the time. Um, so please come support us on our Patreon, patreon.com backslash talking with tech and join the group. I'm really excited to start posting behind the scenes types of things. Right before we got on, I was telling Chris a story and he's like, Rachel, stop, wait this should be recorded and we can put this in our Patreon. Um, Cause oftentimes Chris and I are just trying to catch up when we first hop on a recording, we don't hit the record button. So now we've decided that I'm actually going to set my zoom Chris so that it automatically starts recording. So Excellent. as soon as I hop on a zoom, it's going to start recording all those awesome behind the scenes stories that I tend to tell. We don't necessarily air all of them, um, but I do think some of them would be useful, entertaining, and fun and fun to listen to. I think people will really uh, dig on them and it wouldn't be enough to necessarily make an entire episode. So it would be like a short little extra piece of content that might be like, yeah, okay, I have a situation very similar. I think that's in fact, that was very, that's what your story was today. You know, what we were chatting about. Yeah. Also, I want to bring up one thing that it would be a logical fallacy to think, well, those other three people just signed up this week. I, they don't need me to sign up. That would be a logical fallacy. We need more people. We'll never get that helicopter. <laughs> we'll never get to pay uh, Michaela. We'll never get to pay Luke if we don't have even more. So those of you that have signed up, thank you so much. Those of you who haven't, please consider doing so. And just go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech. Chris, what's our episode about today? So today's episode is all about cortical visual impairment. Uh, we have two people on who are talking about their experiences and how to um, work with students that have CVI. I'm really excited for this episode because I think we all could agree we need to know a little bit more as a field about cortical visual impairment and how it affects the students that we work with. Um, my own experience has been, you know, so eye-opening because every case is different, right? And it's like, I know about CVI in this capacity, but what about in this capacity? And I feel like it presents differently, um, but there's definitely some you know, key points that you can take away, and I'm really excited. So without further ado, let's listen to my interview with Christine Tripoli and Ellen Maisel. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Ellen Maisel and Chrissy Tripoli. Is that right? Did I say that right? Yep. Yes. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Ellen, you can go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, my name is Ellen Maisel, and I am the director of the CVI project here at Perkins School for the Blind. Um, I'm, uh, my background is as a teacher of students with visual impairments and a deafblind specialist. And um, I'm Chrissy, and I'm an SLP who works at the DeafBlind program here at Perkins School for the Blind. And um, I've been working with kids with complex communication needs for about six years. Excellent. Now, so the Perkins School is sort of famous in my world, like Perkins. But if you, people haven't heard of it, where are you located, like geographically? We're in Watertown, Massachusetts. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a name that's out there in the world, in the world of uh, visual impairments. So it's an exciting place to be. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So today we're going to talk specifically about cortical visual impairment. So can you tell us what is that? If someone hasn't heard of that term before, what does it really mean? So it's, um, it's a very strange thing for people to wrap their heads around because essentially what it is, is that the cause of the visual impairment is not the eyes at all. It's the visual brain. 
And with the improvements in um, brain scanning and the ability to image the brain, they really understand that your, your eyes are just a very small component to how you perceive the world. So it's a um, brain-based visual impairment that really impacts visual attention and visual recognition. So we also call it, it, it's called by many, many words. People call it cortical, people call it cerebral, people call it neurological, um, but all of it is uh, a visual impairment and certainly impacts children's learning. So let me ask, how would someone begin to suspect that their child might have CVI? What kind of behaviors would you expect to see? Yeah, I guess. What, what would you see that the student would be doing that would make you think, oh, this, this might be CVI. We should go have this uh, looked at. So it's, um, uh, right now, it's actually the leading cause of visual impairment in children in the United States, which people don't really, it's like the, the leading cause nobody knows about. Um, so what happens is um, children are born and parents pretty quickly realize that, wait a minute, my, this little baby's not looking at me or this little baby doesn't seem to be looking at anything in the world. Um, so they take the child off to the eye doctor and the eye doctor says, well, everything looks good go to the neurologist. And the neurologist, the imaging is not really that good yet, so they can't really take a look at the, visual, the, the an MRI and say, oh, there's the CBI right there. It's, um, I equate it to kind of like autism. You um, can't see autism in the brain, but you can see the behaviors that the autism creates. So that's what we really take a look at is the behaviors of a, a visual behaviors of a child. And that gives us the assessment areas that we take a look at for a child. Gotcha. So then who would be doing the diagnostic or who would be doing the diagnosis? And, and what age would it usually start to present itself in a way that you could then like assess it? Mm -hmm. uh, parents know about it right away, obviously, because they're really carefully looking at their child um, and realizing that certain things aren't happening. So it can be um, diagnosed very early. I mean, it can be diagnosed really in, in a matter of hours um, uh, at different levels. There's different severity levels depending on the damage to the visual brain. So you may have a child who acts very, 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 very blind and really does not look at anything in the world all the way up to the kid who's looking at things, but not understanding what they're looking at. And that's the place I think Chrissy and I really see the biggest problem around um, service from the SLP is just having people understand just because the child is looking doesn't equate to their understanding what they're seeing. And that's the primary, uh, the primary problem for a child with CBI is not understanding what they see. Um, so really, um, it's a combination of taking a look at some of the um, medical history of a child. So anything like a shaken baby, asphyxia, strokes, any kind of uh, motor problem in children because the motor pathways and the visual pathways run right next to each other in the brain. Um, infections. Um, the cerebral palsy community is very tied into this now and very much understands their children are impacted. The Rett's community is very involved now because they understand their children also have CDI. Um, children with prematurity that have brain bleeds, all of those children, not, those are the red flags that I would look for in a child's report um, to, to give me the clue. And then I would make sure they went to a medical professional and had the eyes checked out. And they will I say, do the, does the eye condition match how this child's using their vision? 
And if it doesn't, then I would do a functional vision assessment and then bring that information back to the eye doctor or the optometrist, and then they would give the diagnosis. But it, see, again, it's back to almost like, a, like an autism diagnosis that gets done by a series of behaviors. Gotcha. Okay. You mentioned something there that I think, um, I mean, I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are either speech language pathologists or teachers. They're probably not teachers of the visually impaired. And you mentioned a functional vision assessment. Can you describe that uh, for someone who doesn't know what that is? Sure. Um, so one of the, and again, you know, people are going to, when you say visual impairment, everybody thinks, oh, I've got to make it bigger. I've got to bring it closer. And those are not the issues of brain-based visual impairment. We look at very, very specific things that we know about the visual brain. And the importance of the assessment is that children with CDI can improve their vision because it's about learning to understand what you're looking at. So it's very different from an ocular impairment where we're working around the visual impairment. We're actually working at the visual impairment, trying to make that visual recognition better. So we look at what is the child's attention to light? Because if we know how much they need light, we can then embed light in their education. Uh, we look at what colors draw their visual attention. And then again, those colors are what we use in that child's education. We know that movement is very important to the visual brain. So just moving items will draw visual attention. Um, we look at um, how long a child can look, whether they look directly at things or use their peripheral vision more. Uh, we take a look at how much trouble they have with complexity. So if I have um, a toy among a bunch of other toys, that child may not be able to find it. I have to isolate that toy and then the child can find it. We call that complexity of array. Um, we also think of um, background. If the background is very cluttered, like uh, they can no longer find what they're looking for. Uh, they don't typically look at faces, so they tend to get a diagnosis of, of autism. And we have to be very careful that children really do have autism. It's not just, it's not CBI. Um, they tend to be close lookers because there's less to look at close up, less complexity. So they tend to be very close lookers and look as if they're ignoring the rest of the world. Um, they don't reach accurately, which again would very much impact any device use. Um, they, um, we look at visual reflexes, so we give a threat to the face to see how fast they would blink. Um, and then um, they, children might understand their own items, but then when you try to show them something else similar, they don't understand it. So an example of that is children might understand their own cup, but then you take them to a restaurant and they no longer can identify a cup because they don't understand cupness. They don't have rec broad recognition. So um, some of these, those are the things that we assess. And from that assessment, we draw all our strategies. Gotcha. And so that is something that the teacher of the visually impaired usually does, or is it something you do in conjunction with other or... We, I, we um, very much have to work in teams. I think like nothing else, both the medical community and the teacher of students with visual impairments now have to work together much more closely than ever before. Um, certainly, I've, I have to know what Chrissy's trying to pull off with, with what, what her goals are around the speech and language for a child in order for me to understand how I can, uh, how, how I can make suggestions around making that accessible. So it's, um, everybody's got a role in it, I believe, and um, nobody's role is 
more important than the other. It's all about accessibility so that we don't confuse a child's inability with lack of understanding. We're, we understand CBI well enough to see when they make mistakes what those mistakes mean. Are they coding by color, for instance? Are they hitting the, the red icon because they confuse it with the other red icon? We want to make sure we really understand how the child's operating visually in their worlds. So it could present really differently to different people. It couldn't be just uh, CBI, so therefore you have to have a yellow background or a black exactly, background. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, the brain is the brain is the brain, and, and uh, nobody has the same brain damage. Nobody has the same uh, visual recovery. Um, I really encourage people to take a look at some of the work done at um, the um, Lab of Visual Neuroplasticity at Harvard. Um, it's, there's a nice website there. It talks about some research being done with um, virtual reality around CBI. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I love the idea of virtual reality. But then, yeah, how would that work with CBI? It would be... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm definitely going to check that out. <laughs> so it's one example is they, um, they will ask a child uh, to pick a toy. So it might be a, a yellow duck or a blue a car or a red airplane. Child picks the blue car and then they would put it in the toy box and they would watch through eye gaze technology where the child goes. And what happens is they realize that the child is not really looking at the shape of the, of the truck by trying to find it with other blue things. So you see the eye gaze flip back and forth. So they're coding by color. They're not understanding the shape of it at all. Shape, that's fascinating. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that could really shape how you design future experiences for kids in a VR experience, right? Exactly. And you can see how the huge implications that would have to um, a device if a child didn't really understand what they were looking at, if you had two blue icons on there. Yeah, okay, well, so let's, that sounds like a natural segue to communication. So let's talk about that for a second. What are some of the considerations we need to make for communication systems if we're considering, you know, augmentative communication? Yeah, so that's something that I focus on every day with a ton of my kids. Um, I have a high population of students with CVI as well as additional ocular impairments. So it's kind of balancing all of that in one. Along with each of the characteristics that Ellen talked about before, there's different strategies that go along with that, whether it's directly related to the student's AC system or just how you're kind of interacting with them on a daily basis in your sessions. For strategies around light, um, a lot of our students really, light is very important to them, especially in the lower phases. So there's phase one, phase two, and phase three. It's very important in phase one. And so you might see your students light gazing a lot or looking out the window. Um, so you want to reduce that so their visual attention can go to something that you're actually working on. So I'm um, often either like dimming lights in the room or we have light filters. You can buy those on Amazon. And then just figuring out how to face the student in the best way. So facing them away from a door, away from a window, towards like a blank wall, something like that. So just kind of making those adjustments in your environment. Um, but you can also... Go ahead. Sorry, I wanted to ask. So I, I bet there's a lot of people that are not familiar with phase one, phase two, and phase three. Can you describe those a little bit and what you mean by those before we go on with more things to do in each of those phases? Yeah, of course. And Ellen can help me out here. Um, but yeah, so phase one is the earlier, um, the earliest phase of CVI. And um, on when you get a CVI range, which is something um, produced by Christine Roman Lancy, um, ideally you get a range, you don't always. <laughs> um, 
And so that's from, I believe, one to three. Zero to three. Zero to three um, is the score about that. Um, You can describe it a little bit. Yeah. So um, uh, if you break it up, if you broke up a child's functioning from zero to ten, zero would mean little uh, visual behavior at all. So, and remember, their eyes are perfectly fine, Mm -hmm. so they see everything but they don't understand anything they see, so they act blind. They really, it's like the world is a kaleidoscope and it's just shifting colors and shapes and movement and it's actually very disturbing to children so you often get behaviors in crowded places and things like that. Um, And then if you think of the other end as a 10, it's typical vision. So we score the kid between a zero and a 10 um, to get that, whatever that score is. So in phase one, there's very limited visual attention. There's, there's absolutely no visual recognition. So these would be the children we couldn't use anything in two dimensions with. Everything has to be three dimensions because it has to be tactically explored because the child is essentially blind. When you move into phase two, you've got some building visual attention. So they're looking at some things that usually they're familiar things or their favorite colors. Um, but they still don't always recognize what they're looking at. So again, you have to be very careful in that transition from real objects that they can actually handle and manipulate before you go flat, because you lose that size, you lose that realism that they really hang their hats on. Um, Children with CVI, too, don't um, understand things in different perspectives. If I hold a cup in one perspective and then turn it so they're seeing it from a different view, they don't understand what it is any longer. So that's another part we have to support as a teacher of students with visual impairments. By the time you get to the higher um, CVI phase, those children are looking at everything but not understanding what they're looking at. So they don't understand new things. They don't understand things too close together. They don't understand faces at all. So they're always mixing up people. Um, They have a lot of trouble in complexity, a lot of trouble um, with anything new. They typically have lower visual field problems. So they do a lot of tripping. Um, So that's kind of a generalization about the three phases. And just to be, just to clarify, students can make improvements based on through the phases. So just because you're in phase one doesn't mean you couldn't eventually become phase two, phase three. And I guess would phase four be not have CVI anymore? Well, uh, actually, a ten. If you scored a ten, you would not have CVI. But CVI does not go away. Nobody gets to a ten. So that's the other thing that people realize. In the past, I think people thought, oh, they're looking now, so everything's fine. But it's uh, what they quickly realized as they began to understand CDI is that looking does not mean understanding what you're looking at. You have to always check that piece of it. Do they really understand what they're looking at? Gotcha. So, so a 10 on the CDI range of 0 to 10 would, tell, would say you had typical vision, you didn't have any problems. So no one gets to a 10. Gotcha. So there, you're, there's, you're using a 10-point scale, but then also the three phases. So those are two separate things, right? Well, there's a 10-point scale. If you score 0 to 3, you're in phase 1. Okay. If you are uh, 3 plus to a 7, you're phase 2. If you score 7 plus to 10, you're a phase 3. Gotcha, gotcha. The 10-point scale is uh, like gradients of that 3-point right, scale. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And that allows you, it's, you can see that in phase 1, your goal is just getting them to look. Like that's all your goal is. Whereas in phase three, your goal would be to help them understand what they're looking at by supporting that, that understanding of what they're looking at. Gotcha. Okay, so Christy, you started to give some suggestions about when a student was in phase one. Could you? Continue? Yeah, so um, light tends to be really important when a student's in phase one. So um, 
but in order to get their visual attention on a task that we would like them to do, <laughs> um, you have to kind of limit um, the lighting in the environment so that they're not distracted by it. Um, but we can also use lighting to our advantage to help draw their attention to something that actually is important. Um, so you might highlight an item with a flashlight or a carefully placed book light um, so that they're not actually looking at the book light, but they're looking at the item you've highlighted or the symbol you've highlighted. Um, also like using objects with light components um, is generally helpful in phase one. Um, a lot of my students, their favorite toys are something with lights. <laughs> Um, and then as you progress into phase two, phase two is kind of the messy phase, um, as I would describe it anyway, because um, there's a huge range in phase two. Um, so you have sudden students who are still using three-dimensional, but then some students you're able to start transitioning as they get a higher and higher score to a two-dimensional um, symbol. So... The first step for doing that might be presenting a low complexity, highly familiar toy in a photo on a backlit surface. So maybe on an iPad or something like that, because the backlit component will also help draw their visual attention and determine those details for them. Okay. Um, so latency is another one of the characteristics. Um, really, we just have to make sure that we know how long it takes for a student to look um, before we're prompting them because prompting them then adds a different layer of complexity because now you're yelling at them when they're trying to do something really hard. <laughs> and so um, I think for SLPs, that's really hard. <laughs> that's a good strategy for any student, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. Wait time and learning to zip our lip is something that I think we're all trying to practice. Um, also, if a student is um, feeling sick or tired or visually fatigued, they might need more time to respond. Um, so then colors, another one of the important ones that we end up using a lot, especially when we're thinking about symbols and AAC systems. Um, so a student's preferred color, which could really be anything, but um, you know, frequently it's thought about as red or yellow, but it depends on the student. Um, you can use those preferred colors to highlight an, um, a symbol or an object. Um, you could outline it, but you wouldn't want to outline like every icon on a grid, on a five by six grid, because that just draws their attention to the whole thing, and then they still don't know what they're looking at. So um, one thing we use sometimes might be like colored popsicle sticks in a frame with like a stick on it, or like a, a shaped pipe cleaner in their favorite color um, so that you can highlight using that and they can move it from place to place depending on what symbol you're targeting. So that might be an option for like when you're trying to model something. Um, your hands flying around also can add to the complexity. So um, sometimes using that preferred color can help. With our symbols also, there are some like high contrast symbols out there, but as Ellen was saying, it's not really a contrast issue, it's a recognition issue. Um, so some of those symbols are even more difficult to visually recognize if their color has been changed. Um, so thinking about like using as realistic photos or symbols as possible um, might be a consideration. Though every kid is different and it doesn't mean they couldn't learn the symbolic representation of that symbol. It's just that visually it'd be more difficult for them to recognize and then transfer that to the environment around them. Yeah, I can imagine 
keeping keeping symbols in the same spot would be sort of important because then you don't you don't have to be searching for it with your eyes. I just know that when I move my finger like this, it means that meaning, right? Is that exactly? Yeah, I think using location as a support is super helpful for students with CVI, um, and then figuring out how to use um, auditory support in the correct way if auditory is an access point for them. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of considerations there just to figure out which is the best way for them to access. But we just have to think about if they are looking and when they are looking, what actually they're getting out of the image. Gotcha. Okay. So um, how would you adjust, maybe, maybe you already answered this question, but let me ask, when you're making your therapy materials and you're considering, okay, what experiences do I want the kids to have? How do you make the adjustments to those materials? You had already just said about like the lighting in the room and, and, and making sure that it, um, that there's not some sort of uh, light that's going to be uh, distracting, them. distracting them, right? What else? Um, so other things to kind of consider um, earlier in, phase, in the phases, so in phase one, um, singular color objects are better because more colors can often look like more than one object. So um, I believe the term is simultaneous agnosia. <laughs> um, and so sometimes movement can help, um, like a slow shaking movement can help the students see that as one whole object because it moves as a unit. So it can help the brain kind of figure that out. But can you give me an example of that? What is something you've done that, that, that helps illustrate that? Um, so say I'm a student's making a choice maybe of like a leisure activity. Um, you know those bumble balls that bounce across the table? They're really fun and get a, yeah, a lot of kids yeah. get a kick out of them. It's like a green background and then it has like m these multicolored spokes coming out of it in every direction. So uh -huh. there's a lot of different colors there, but it's also can be quite a highly preferred object. So when I'm presenting it to the student, I might hold it up in front of them in their preferred visual field and just kind of slowly move it in kind of rotating so that they can get a chance to see it moving as one. Gotcha. Okay. And that might help them visually recognize it. And then they could, you know, reach out or hit their selection switch or whatever it may be um, to select that item. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, like I mentioned before, each kid might have a different visual field that they prefer. So presenting items or symbols in that field so they can um, access it rather than trying to put even more of a labor on their vision, you might want to just go to their preferred visual field when you're asking them to do something especially difficult. Um, complexity, what, go ahead. What, what's a preferred, what's, I'm sorry, what's a preferred visual field? Um, so some students have a stronger visual field on their left or on their right. Um, the lower visual field often is, um, not as easily accessible for a student with CVI. So I often present things on a slant board. And if they're objects or if they're three-dimensional, I either use Velcro or I have a slant board with a ledge so that I can place the items um, in like a good spacing and so that they're easily accessible without having them on the table so they don't have to look all the way down to find them. Gotcha. And you, is that something that would be teased out in the uh, functional visual assessment so that you yeah. have some idea like, oh, and plus you might just, trial and error. Oh my gosh, exactly. look, when we raise up and give it, give it more of a vertical plane, then the student sees it better. Well, sometimes it's so evident because they come into the room and they're not looking in one direction at all. 
Like they just do not look in one direction at all. They're all on, on the right or all on the left. So sometimes you can tell right away. Um, the other part of a preferred visual field is sometimes children don't use central vision. They just use their side vision. So they look as if they're looking away and exactly. And this really confuses people because then they keep moving the materials in front of them and the child is trying so desperately to get it in their better visual field, which happens to be their preferred peripheral field. So that's another component that we take a look at. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and then, so another one of the things is complexity, which Ellen talked a little bit about before. And complexity is honestly huge for everything that we do related to AAC and symbol use communication. Um, so like we were saying before, three-dimensional is in phase one and early phase two. And then in like mid phase two, you can start thinking about presenting things two-dimensionally. Um, it's just really for, that's just how they can visually access three-dimensional and two-dimensional. Um, every kid is different in terms of what supports they might need in other ways. So a student might need, you know, a tactile component or a three-dimensional component anyway, but in terms of visually accessible, they can transition to 2D, um, start to see things in 2D through the middle of phase two is when that begins. Well, Chrissy, let me ask, because I'm trying to reconcile this in my own brain when, and thinking about the students that I know that I know have CVI that I have worked with or that I've, I've chatted with, um, or I mean, the teams that I've chatted with. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the development of a, so we know that we want to have a robust language system. We should model as much as we can, right? So but now we're trying to marry that with this, with this idea that, uh, you know, if a student did not have CVI, you could present them with, you know, a, a bunch of symbols organized in a way, and I mean, thousands of words, and by modeling that. So how do we reconcile those two things where we want to give a robust language system, and we want to be modeling it, but also be taking into account the, the, what you were just saying about moving from phase one to phase two? Yeah, it's definitely something that we struggle with here on a daily basis. Um, we're constantly trying to figure out the best way for students to access a robust system. Um, so the thing that seems to be the e easiest answer for most of our students, um, and this is only speaking from our group, but um, is using a partner-assisted scanning approach. Um, when you have to limit the array or when you have to limit... Um, the dimension. <laughs> um, it seems that partner-assisted scanning will be able to give a student as much access as they can, but still in a way that they can access it. And then also thinking about what modes they're actually using to access their system. If they're accessing it visually, you have to think about how that's going to work. If they're accessing it auditorily and tactilely, or how those things are all working together. Um, it's really a lot to reconcile in one system, but um, partner-assisted scanning is something that we have really been interested in trying out with a lot of our CBI students. Can you just, again, if, if someone's listening to this and they're like, partner-assisted what now? Can you, <laughs> can you describe that just a little bit for people? So yeah, um, I can describe in like kind of just a simple like choice-making experience might be. So if a student is on three-dimensional objects at this point. Um, I might have a piano toy, a maraca, and a tambourine, and I'm giving them choices between the three. Um, and I'm doing it one at a time because this student can only handle one three-dimensional object at a time. 
or maybe they can handle two, but I want to give them more options than that. Um, so I would say, okay, we're going to, um, first we're going to look and then I shut my voice off because looking and listening to me at the same time is going to add to the complexity. So I might show them the tambourine, slowly shake it a little bit in their visual field so they can have a little while to look at it. And then I'd take it away. I might tell them that was the tambourine. Then the next thing I would show them, the maraca. Again, slowly present it to them, wait, and then take it down, tell them that was the maraca. Um, and then the third one, do the same thing. Then I might tell them, okay, now it's time to pick. Um, and then do the same series in the same order over again. And different students will have different selection methods. Um, I've had students who reach out. I've had students who um, were working on using a switch to select. So um, every student is different. It might be an action, like raising your hand. Um, and then when the student um, reaches out or selects the item they want, then that's their choice. And um, they get some time to play with it. So that's just kind of a quick example. Yeah, that was an excellent description. I appreciate that. And I really like what you said about um, how you how you kind of paused and did not have both the audio and the visual <laughs> at the same time, right? It's like, okay, you're going to listen to my voice. Now I'm going to show you this thing, not here's the maracas, here's the maracas, here's the maracas. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it can be really cumbersome and, you know, it takes a long time. It's not quick and easy, but um, I'd rather that than nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that would probably be the same if you were using some sort of core vocabulary um, exactly. and you're pointing to each word and saying each symbol mm -hmm. and doing that exact same thing and waiting for the student to make a choice or respond with whatever, however they're doing that. Like you said, raising their hand, blinking their yeah. eyes, hitting a switch, whatever. All right, cool. Yeah. So right now we're actually, some of the SLPs and I are um, working together to try and come up with some three-dimensional symbols that we can use for core words. Um, they have to be, you know, very arbitrary, but we're thinking about visually what's going to be important to differentiate those core words. Um, people have been kind of piecing things together over time, but we're trying to um, put something together that's a little more structured, at least internally, for what we're working on. Well, let me ask you, have you used the 3D symbols from Project Core? Have you heard about those? I have, actually, from the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I find them really cool. And I think they are actually geared towards a deafblind population. Mm -hmm. um, but I ha we haven't totally decided what we're going to use. Um, visually, I'm not sure if they're going to be um, easily differentiated. I have to kind of look at what they all look like um, because of just they're more for someone who's totally blind, I think, is yeah. the, what they're geared towards. But it's definitely something to think about and work off of. I, I've seen them painted different ways so uh -huh. that you can, um, you know, so that's like the background of the, in fact, I have one printing downstairs right now as we speak. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's open in the software right now, but the, you could have like the background. So you know how there's like a sort of a background image or a background yeah. base to it and there's kind of raised portion to it. Yeah. So like go is like a raised arrow, right? Right. So the background could be painted whatever color and then the raised part could be painted a different color to mm -hmm. provide, again, based on their preferences, um, so that there could be that contrast. You know? Yeah. So I think um, that's definitely something we're exploring at least to look at as part of um, what we're trying to decide. Um, but yeah, we just want to make sure we're being careful about like not 
having, you know, also a green arrow going up or, you know, whatever it is, how to differentiate those things. And then also having, I think, especially for our students who are in the lower phases, a tactile component that differentiates them too, so that they can also experience the um, symbol through tactile. So it's really a complicated problem. We don't have all the answers yet, but um, it's something that I think is really important for us all to be working on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the whole field is working on that too, right? So yeah. congratulations. Good, good for you for working on that. <laughs> yeah, um, we're trying. So let me ask if there was, a, again, many speech therapists, I think, listen to this podcast looking for ideas. So what would be some of the considerations for specific SLPs? Hmm. Anything we haven't covered already, or you? Feel I don't like know. Let me think. <laughs> I think that partnership is the huge part. Yeah, really, honestly, just just making sure that that you realize this is a visual impairment, and you have to partner with someone who understands that visual impairment uh, for accessibility. That's an ongoing. I think that's another thing that yeah. you know, if Chrissy's at the um, object scanning level, once those objects get familiar then you can make that more complex and make that different because now you've gotten over that hurdle of visual recognition. Right. So mm-hmm. it's an ongoing partnership. I think that's my point. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think collaboration across the team is really key. And luckily we have some really good resources here like Ellen. So she can help guide us in terms of our visual journey with um, communication systems. So it's, yeah, constant collaboration and checking in with how things are going. And, you know, there is an element of trial and error here there where we just have to make sure we're collecting data and taking observations and figuring out what's working and what's not. Because, you know, even everything I'm saying, it's every kid is a little different. So um, you just got to kind of individualize as much as we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it takes a whole team to figure out what the individual might need. Right? For sure. And I think really uh, all the assessment methods that we use all tap into that parent information that is so vital. So just really remembering um, the parent is part of the team whenever we look at a kid with CVI, because if you miss, if you miss that information, you, um, you're behind the eight ball all the time. It's because they can tell you how the child sees at three o'clock in the afternoon versus nine o'clock in the morning, how they act at the mall, how they act in um, busy places. So really important information to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let me ask. Um, if people wanted to learn more, if they wanted to get to more information, if there was special or any, any sort of resources that they could go to, what yeah. might you, where might you point people? Definitely. Um, so I can also provide a resource list that you can post up on the show notes if that works. Absolutely. Um, but some names, there's some big names in the field that, you know, people can do a quick Google search um, to check out. And that would be like Christine Roman Lancy. Um, Matt Tejan has done a lot of work with complexity of 2D images. Um, so his stuff is really interesting. He has a what's the complexity framework, looking at which 2D images are more complex and less complex. So photos are going to be less complex, whereas like a cartoon black and white line drawing is going to be uh, much more complex visually. Mm-hmm. Um, also, George Dutton is another name. He does um, CVI Scotland. Um, Latfi Maribet is a researcher. He's very, very smart. <laughs> um, so he's been doing a ton with CVI. Um, Els Orbit, uh, sorry, Ordibus. Ordibus. Thank you. I'm going to ruin it. Um, Does Teach CVI, which is a website, right? Yeah, it's a. It's got three screening tools, and then it's also got literacy materials. It's got a lot of good stuff. Teach CVI. 
Um, and then Perkins eLearning has a lot of webinars, in-person, online training. So there's lots of options um, there too. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaways really are just that, you know, we need to be learning more. And this is, I think, a big issue for a lot of our students, whether, you know, we know it or not, because some kids might not even be diagnosed yet. Um, and there are those, you know, misdiagnoses out there or behaviors that might be assigned to something else like ASD or ADD, ADHD, so just like some of that distraction or, you know, preference for familiarity, facial recognition. Um, faces is a big one, because um, especially because like in a lot of our um, programs, at least in my world, um, where during any sort of like morning meeting or group thing, um, students are identifying each other through um, photos often. And um, that's just not a really an accessible way for our students to be identifying themselves, their friends or their teachers. So thinking about um, always introducing yourself, um, using personal identifiers, like maybe a bracelet you always wear, or um, having like a tactile component to a kid's um, symbol in their class, something like that. So making those um, moments accessible and thinking about, sorry, I'm just now I'm on a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so great. That's so great, Chrissy, because you hear it all the time. And I think there's a lot of people preach visuals, 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 but it's, there's more to that to make it accessible than just throwing visuals up on the, on the front of the yeah, board. Yeah, for sure. And I think as SLPs, we also have to think about, um, you know, any student with a visual impairment, but also with CVI, incidental learning is just not something that's accessible. So um, thinking about how that impacts their social world and their vocabulary development, um, we need to really kind of bring those experiences to them and make them accessible as much as possible. That's really good practical strategy there, like you said, as some sort of identifier that's not just your face, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my students I've been working with for, you know, couple years now, I still walk in and say, hi, it's Chrissy. Because, yeah. um, you know, it's not their responsibility to memorize my voice. <laughs> um, so they talk to people all day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. So there's one sort of final question that I like to ask uh, anyone that I get to interview. And that is, you know, what are you learning about right now? What are you curious about? What are you questing after? What are you sort of kind of floating your boat and keeping you interested in your own professional learning or just, just something you're wondering about? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, CVI is still on top of my list trying to come up with, you know, learning more and more about what I can do to support my students' communication um, who have CVI. So thinking about those symbols that we're making and thinking about um, what's going to give them the best access to language as well as um, just access to the system that they're using. So um, that's definitely on the top of my list. And then the other one is... Um, in our program right now, we're talking a lot about active learning, um, which is actually on the resource list that we'll share. Um, there's a website called activelearningspace.org. Um, and just thinking about students who are emerging communicators and complex communicators with complex bodies and figuring out um, that they can have an impact on the world around them um, and really using what we have to help them access their world um, and give them that connection. So, Fantastic. And Ellen? Um, I think that um, we have to, in my world, we have to keep track of um, what's happening around the visual brain. So there, we just started a CBI certification program at UMass Boston. And the first class is called uh, Vision and the Brain. So um, it's just 
fascinating to hear how your brain recognizes things or how your brain is impacted by movement. So um, it's a it's a um, a topic that's just ever changing in everybody's in everybody's world. Really, you should keep up with it. Um, you know, I, I once uh, Lofty Marabet once said to me, "If you have anything on your shelf about the brain that's more than five years old." throw it away because it's not good anymore. So it's a, it's a fast changing and exciting uh, world, I think. Uh, and um, the brain is all where the learning happens. So the more we know about that, the better. Awesome. Those are great. Great. I just love that so much. So let me ask you, how can people reach out to you? Um, I can provide an email, Ellen, if you're I can comfortable. As well. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we can um, share that with you uh, along with the resource list and then Hopefully people can uh, learn more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Hi, I'm Mei-Ling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.